millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's the Wonky Show. We're talking generational differences in attitude to education. We chat about NUS Conference up in Glasgow, an investigation into stalking on campus, and an initiative to help care leavers into HE. It's all coming up. Incidentally, I put I put out a thing on Twitter a little while ago to say, has anyone got just a place where we could have a list of all public lectures for UK universities? And everyone's like, yes, but no one's actually done it. But interesting, <laughs> if we could add car parking information on there. So, Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and here to fire at the moving target of higher education policy, we have three fabulous guests. In London we have Jess Moody, Senior Advisor at Advanced HE. Jess, give us your highlight of the week please. Uh, My highlight of the week is M87. 200 scientists working across the world to look at a big black hole, that's my kind of news. In West Suffolk we have Nick Hillman, Director of HEPI. Nick, give us your highlight of the week please. Good morning. Well, I'm going to be very parochial and selfish. My highlight of the week has been taking my kids to Centre Park. I think it is. And the swimming pools there are amazing. So we've spent most of the week wet. And live from Wonky HQ, we have Wonky's assistant editor, um, Artie Nanshipan. Artie, your highlight of the week, please. So mine's definitely a bit more selfish. When Jess said hers, I was like, oh. (laughs) But but basically, I think my highlight will be, so I've worked on the Wonky Daily for about a year and a half now, and it's been great, and I got to sign off my first one this week. So I'm very proud of that. That's definitely my highlight. This week, we start with a report from centre-right think tank Onward. The Generation Y report takes a look at the generation gap in UK political leanings. So, Artie, what did you make of this report? Yes, this report essentially looks at generational voting patterns and it looks at things like, for example, the uh, to the tipping point, which is a phenomenon of the kind of the average age at which people switch their vote to um, to conservatives. And they looked at a few other generational trends, but they did have a section on higher education as well. And um, they had a few recommendations on off the back of that. So, for example, there was um, a stat to suggest that more over 65s agree with the statement that too many people go to university compared with 18 to 24s. And the difference is actually really quite stark. So, 63% of over 65s agreed with that statement compared with 29% of 18 to 24 year olds. Um, So, the report concludes that um, when it comes to higher education, a popular conservative policy would be to boost technical education and apprenticeships at the expense of some of the places currently offered at university. So, I think what is really interesting for us to unpack here is the the recommendation so it's kind of the absence of solu- that university is in this in this in what's posited as a solution here so they're basically saying that too many people go to university and how we should fix it is more technical education and I kind of just wonder where this has come about because it I don't know whether it comes from the fact that um 
technical and education apprenticeships are seen as better for career prospects and and earnings and um, whether that's why they're being positive solution or whether it's kind of more ideological reasons that you might kind of see in in some corners of the media about universities being too elite and it kind of being a cultural swing away from them. So what I find really interesting about this is kind of the fact that the universities aren't more involved in the solution. Mm-hmm. Nick, what did you make of uh, this report? It's a really, really rich report, very data rich, and it, you need a good couple of hours to go through it properly. But some of the things that struck me, I mean, there are some really big killer facts in there, or rather really small killer facts. So, for example, only 4% of Tory voters are in the under 24 category. You know, th- that is not a good figure for a party that uh, wants a long future as well as a long history. Um, women much more likely to vote uh, Labour than Conservative. So, some really big numbers. And then on the education stuff, it was fascinating. So, two things that stood out for me. Um, you know, we've always made this assumption that the more educated you are, the more likely you are to vote Labour and in the US Democrat. But they slightly pour cold water on that. They say that if you control for age, then that sort of disappears. So it's more to do with you know how old you are rather than how educationally qualified you are. And the other thing, and it links to what was just being discussed, um, you're more likely to be sceptical of large numbers of people going to higher education if you have a degree yourself. And that worries me. There is a sense of, you know, you pull the ladder up behind people. Um, And, you know, I think we all see that maybe in our day-to-day conversations. We must be very careful, those of us who are graduates, at thinking universities only for people like us and not for people in society across the board. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Jess, does that chime with what you took from the report? Yeah, and this is the point where I always like to quote my uh, my former colleague, Anne-Marie Canning, MBE, um, who always says, um, <laughs> just politely ask who shouldn't go when folks say too many people are going to university. Um, and uh, I, I think that's that's definitely coming up in here. The, the gender split that Nick mentioned there is, is really fascinating. 8%, 8% of 18 to 24-year-old women would vote Conservative today, which they say correlates heavily with pessimism, um, which, yes. Um um, and 56% of women think the next generation will be worse off than their own. There's, there's some really interesting things here about political leanings and gender. There's some political um, differences um, around, oh, sorry, a lack of political difference, perhaps, around issues around trans equality, which is, is coming out, which is really interesting, as that's often flagged up as, as one of the key issues um, in higher education at the moment around free speech and things like that. So th- there's some nice stuff coming through here, actually, about, gen- for me, generational optimism about some issues um there's this sense of um uh, focus on the environment a, fe- um, a sense on uh, what they say punishing companies that do not ask, act responsibly and so how this will actually play out in you know how people talk to mostly young um students in higher education about what they want and how they see their future um i think there are some some seeds of hope here you just mentioned two other things because there's one thing that comes through the report which comes through other people's reports as well which is the interest younger people take in the environment um, and it led me to think, and I'm going to say something deeply unpopular here at the moment, um, especially I've been trying not to think about Brexit this week because I've been on holiday. Um, but it, actually, I read the report and I thought, you know, David Cameron was a genius in his early years as leader of the Conservative Party of putting together a coalition that led uh, people who would not normally vote Conservative to vote Conservative. And of course, he did win uh, a majority in the 2015 election. Of course, it all went horribly wrong after the referendum. But there are a lot of things. It's a very Cameron document or even a Blairite document. There's a lot in there that uh, the Blairites would recognise as well as Cameronites. And it, it leads you to thinking, you know, 
elections are won from the centre. And I think it's easy to forget in the last two or three years that that mm. truism probably still holds. No, indeed. And I, I think that the report is, uh, I was going to say stinks of, but that sounds awful. But it feels very kind of centre, kind of right, left, doesn't it? And uh, um, one wonders if it was uh, something that was from the uh, further wings of either side, if, if the um, percentages and the results that we got back would be different. Um, but I thought I, th- I thought it was fascinating, as you said. It's really quite a dense document. If if the listeners haven't read it, it will be in the show notes. If you want to go through it, I would highly recommend it. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, this is James Wilsden, uh, Professor of Research Policy at the University of Sheffield, just ringing to talk about my piece on Wonky this week about uh, rankers. Um, this was prompted by the publication last week of the latest in the seemingly unending uh, cycle of Times Higher uh, rankings, which they uh, uh, launch onto us and into the world on a, on a weekly basis. Um, and I wanted to ask a few questions about these rankings, having looked at this uh, myself in some detail when I did the Metric Tide review a few years ago, it feels to me that many of the issues that have been repeatedly raised uh, with respect to the accountability, transparency, methodology of rankings remain largely unanswered and these latest ones are uh, replete with new and related questions. Uh, these new indicators around social impacts are all great in and of themselves. If they're so important, why not bring them into the main rankings? Um, why do we need to keep having so many rankings all the time? Uh, surely there must come a point where there's diminishing returns. Um, and the rankers themselves, I really think there's a need now to get much more serious about uh, transparency, accountability and the governance of these organisations, um, particularly at a time when uh, in the world of accountancy, the big four firms are now under serious uh, scrutiny for the links between their auditing and consultancy functions. Many of those same issues uh, pertain to the role of the rankers with respect to uh, governance and transparency in higher education. So all of these issues are in the piece. Uh, it's an attempt to uh, stir it up a bit. Many of the points are familiar, uh, but they remain important. And I hope that the piece uh, does its little bit to uh, push these issues up the agenda again and that we can all do something to try and uh, push the rankers to be more open, be more transparent and treat us like the data literate grown-ups that we are. Hi, I'm Johnny Rich, Chief Executive of the Engineering Professors Council of Outreach Organisation PUSH and the General HE Wonk. I've written one of two pieces on Wonky this week about league tables. I've explained how they measure the wrong things in the wrong ways using poor proxies, poor methodologies and misrepresenting their findings. Worst of all though, league tables are an exercise in trying to get universities to conform to a single idea of what good looks like. That's damaging to universities, to innovation, and most of all, to the students who may need an institution that doesn't fit the arcane idea of a university that rankings seem to want to promote. I've also examined TEF and how it falls into exactly the same trap, making it in effect just as rank a ranking, but this time with government approval. Of course, none of this is helpful to student choice, because instead of informing students better, it just gives them a quick and inaccurate answer to a complex question, when what they really need is a roadmap to understand which institution will suit them best as an individual. Next up is NUS Annual Conference taking place in Glasgow this week. The conference has elected a new full-time officer team, including a new president, and has passed a raft of reforms intended to transform the organisation. Nick, what did you make of all this up in Glasgow? Well, I want to start by paying tribute to Shakira Martin. I think she's been a really good president of the NUS. She's a great communicator. She's done some really interesting initiatives like the Poverty Commission, 
And of course, she's been trying to grip this really serious financial problem the NUS have and which they've been voting on up in Glasgow. Two general elections, one referendum and 11 elections won. It's fair to say it's been a whirlwind. Being a black working class woman from further education, it has come with its challenges. Although twice elected with a majority, I've had to prove every single day why I deserve to be in this role. Every day I was reminded that getting in isn't the same as getting on, as I know a lot of you will be able to relate to. When the structures and rules you are working in weren't built for people like myself, when you are celebrated for your non-traditional voice, but your judgment is not taken seriously on the real stuff, when you're characterised by racist, sexist, classist stereotypes. Because conference, people like me don't get positions like this. But it has been an absolute honour of my life to have been your national president. And I will continue to fight and represent you to the very last day of my term in June. Have a safe journey and I'll see you on the other side. I think it's good there's a plan for the future. We need a national student movement uh, in the UK. Um, I worry, a t- I don't know the new president, but I worry a tiny bit about threats of education strikes and things like that. Um, you know, even when I was working in government and we were tripling tuition fees and there were riots on the streets of London, you know, we had back channel communications to the NUS. In fact, the government was funding some of their anti-extremism work. And I think it's really important that there's an open communication channel between the government and the NUS. Um, and so I hope even if there are new demonstrations, new strikes, whatever, that those communications behind the scenes continue. Mm, No, indeed. Uh, Jess, have you seen anything that's been going up at conference this week? I I have to confess, not as much as as I might otherwise, uh, as as I've been uh, off on leave, but one of the um, uh, things that was nice to see uh, was the the newly elected uh, VP for higher education is there on a a divest, decolonise and democratise platform, as you say, which as well as being wonderfully alliterative. Um, You know, uh, these are important things to mostly young people, not all, but that, that we know at the moment. Um, the decolonisation movement, I mean, we, we could um, talk a lot about, and I, I know um, uh, Minto and colleagues have, have had a, a blog out recently. Um, the important thing with any decolonisation efforts, I think, is to do so authentically and and critically and not to sort of co-opt that for for other means uh, which which isn't in the slightest to, to say that that's what um, um, NUS colleagues are doing that's that's a, a reminder for all of us I think as we go forward and as we we do start to talk about these things um, as a sector as a priority. No indeed and a uh, all women uh, executive team I believe full-time officer team for the first time which I think is super interesting. Artie did you have a take on this what's going up on at conference this week? Yeah, and I was actually just thinking about what Jess just said. And um, yeah, I, I don't know, Jess, did you um, follow the Guardian Awards at all yesterday? Because I was thinking about this because of um, the University of Manchester winning for the the platform that kind of helps academics find um, ways of decolonizing their own their own courses, basically. Yeah, because Rachel, I know that you were really interested in this as well. I just, um, yeah, I just think that we've got to the point where 
ideologically, a lot of the conversations have been had. And now it's kind of about practically how it can be done in the right way. Because I think sometimes when you continue with the ideological conversations about these things for, for a long time, it, it can risk becoming a bit performative. Yes. And I think, you know, we, we, we're doing a lot of work with, um, unis, um, either collaboratively or, or individually to, to help them with, particularly looking at things like curricular issues, learning and teaching, um, and, you know, the, the inclusive nature of that, whether that's specifically decolonization or whether that's uh, using the term liberation or inclusivity. Um, uh, I think, um, I think you're very right. I think, there, this is hard work and it, I think it's right that it's hard um, and I think we all need to be carefully looking at how it's as you say to to prevent that kind of performative nature of it um, and uh, I mean it, it's great that this is something that people are, are waking up to I think it's really important to acknowledge this has been around you know scholars have been working on this for an awful long time student activists have been working on this for a really long time so going forward this is going to be the key this is going to be making sure that the student voice and student activism um, is 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 met um, with equal enthusiasm and equal engagement from from the sector. And I I agree with that. And I think this is an interesting debate to have because the NUS and individual student unions can have a profound impact on higher education. In my view, and I know a lot of people disagree with this, but in my view, it goes wrong when they spend their time talking about huge global issues that, frankly, they don't have much leverage over. They do have leverage over their own institutions and over the higher education sector as a whole. And so the more that we talk about, you know, what's on the curricula, um, what the student experience is like, mental health, all those issues that really matter to the day-to-day lives of students, A, they can make a difference and B, they will engage more with, you know, the regular students who haven't historically had such a big role in the student mm. union movement. Some, some of us were very surprised that one of the ways of saving money would be to uh, get rid of the liberation officers. And I think it was an interesting amendment on the floor of the conference to say, you know, let's think about bringing uh, some of that representation back as and when it can be afforded. And, you know, that's the sort of thing that collective conversations can do. And I think that's probably a positive, actually. Uh, Now, every week this season on the podcast, we are delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academics registrar, Mike Radcliffe, here is the hidden history of HE. Strange rules for regulating the lives of students uh, probably reached their peak as the university started to modernise. And one of the things that brings that into sharp relief is when different kinds of people come to university. So there's a, a, a major phase after Oxford uh, has uh, admitted women and students have returned from after the First World War who are more mature, more engaged with the world, about how the university can control their lives. So there's a, a great moment where the uh, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Oxford from 1920 to 1923 decides that he's going to ban elevenses because he's decided um, that this is a, a frivolous thing for students to do. They shouldn't be doing this. He's going to ban them. And so he starts working out how to do that. And he gets this petition in from the women's colleges, um, complaining that um, students couldn't stand the strain of going from nine to one without sustenance. Uh, And he goes on to say, well, he thinks that it would probably be a good idea if they practice social austerity. But if you look at the rules that students are having to deal with in the the 30s, they're just wonderful in terms of the depth. And students get this kind of panoply of bits of information telling what they can or cannot do, where they can stay, um, what they can bring with them, what they can do. So they're not allowed. To, to bring a car. Now, 
current residents of Oxford would be delighted by the notion that it was very clear that you get a small slip of paper saying, don't bring a car to Oxford, you're not allowed. But the rules go on to set out all sorts of other things you can't do. Um, undergraduates will not loiter in the streets at coffee stalls or at the stage door of a theatre. Um, they will not take the chair at any public meetings. They're not allowed to set up magazines without permission. Um, there's a whole set of rules about um, not being allowed to take part in acting unless you've got permission. Uh, no one is allowed to um, visit any bars, uh, strictly for, forbidden from going to any of the bars in the city. Um, and there's a set of rules for how you have to organise um, dinner parties. Uh, flying is not allowed without proctorial permission. Um, you have to go and get leave before you do that. What, of course, is scary are the rules they've uh, come up with for how to handle men and women being together. So there's a whole set of rules about the amount of chaperoning that the, the women, members of the university, the women who've just become undergraduates for the first time are allowed. Um, they have to have a companion approved in advance if they are to meet with a man student. Um, and they're certainly not allowed to take them uh, to their room. Um, and there's a whole set of these kind of rules that, that work, work their way through. Um, parties of men or women undergraduates may not be held unless each woman undergraduate has previously forwarded to the proctors the written leave from the principal of her college. It is most important that academic dress should be worn. So the prospect of organising all of these things is, is great. Now, there's a, there's, I thoroughly recommend Jane Robinson's Blue Stockings books because it, it, it charts out how people actually were quietly breaking all these rules and, and, and living with them, and the, the, not all of them were, were actually enforced. But there's a real tension here about how the university has decided that it is looking after people. Now, we've seen off a minister who was excited about the notion of in loco parentis. And for those of us who looked at this kind of rule, this is what in loco parentis meant, this kind of controlling of students' lives. And I think we should be very glad that we're not trying to do that now. Next up, we talk about a new investigation by Broadly. But before we get into that, I want to tell you about our new Wonky Plus subscription, giving you and your team even more essential HE policy insight and access to extra wonky benefits. Along with the Wonky Daily delivered to your inbox at 8am every day, you'll get access to the Termly Wonky Briefing, Horizon Scan and, sen- and Sense Check about everything happening in HE policy. Ideal for those that can't follow every twist and daily turn. And as a Plus subscriber, you get exclusive free access to our monthly event, Wonky Live. So you can keep up to date on all the moving and shaking in HE policy in person with Team Wonky and experts from across the sector. You get free use of the Wonky Jobs Board, plus everyone from your organisation gets discounted rates on Wonky events and early access to tickets, including Wonkfest, which always sells out quickly. For more information, contact us on briefing at wonky.com. That's briefing at wonky.com. Or you can visit the website at wonky.com forward slash plus. Now, an investigation by Broadly, an offshoot of Vice, into the ways in which universities support students dealing with stalking and abusive relationships on campus. Jess, what did you uh, make of this? Did anything in the findings stand out for you? Sure. So, um, you know, reports like this, um, discussions like this aren't easy. So um, I'm sure some listeners may wish to just just scoot ahead. But um, this is... um, uh, a study which has come from sorry not yeah sorry I'm going to start again so this is um, uh, the results of a number of uh, freedom of information requests uh, to universities um, in the UK to get a sense of um, how many reports they've had of uh, stalking and harassment um, sorry stalking and uh, domestic abuse and I'll talk about why that's challenging definitions in a moment um, and what happened. 
what were the outcomes of, of any of those reports. And the, the kind of key highlights they're, they're talking about, first of all, is, is the numbers, um, the uh, 381 um, students reporting in the last three years, um, you know, is flagged as, you know, obviously 381 too many, um, and really flagging that um, half of alleged perpetrators remained at the same university. So the, the, there's, there's a few different things in here to flag, um, I think, and some of them are brought out in the report. So firstly, they acknowledge that um, there are always challenges with um, FOI requests as a way of trying to measure things like incidences of harassment and hate crime. Um, you know, we don't necessarily have standard definitions here. We've talked about the, the challenge of this with sexual harassment um, before. So, you know, of all of those universities they submitted FOIs to, that, you know, not going to get responses necessarily from all of them in the same way. So so that's a, just, just a little caveat on, on the data set. Um, the, the report try, uh, really flags up that nearly half of the cases occurred at Russell Group unis, um, which I, again I think you know just just being careful of the, the caution here around how FOI results are, um, come in, and they've even provided on their website um, a, a a little interactive map and in, infographics so you can literally see the hotspots, um, as well as a breakdown by all the different universities um, and and the outcomes of this. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of data here. There's a lot of things where I'm sure that people might you know be going to look at what's happening in their own universities because this is not stuff that we tend to talk about internally in universities. Um, there are the, the, there are always these key issues. So first of all, it's definitions, and it, it's horrible to come down to that. But this is about um, stalking and domestic abuse, and I think it's quite right that the report flags that sometimes these are not terms that we're always talking about when we're talking about the wider issues of, of harassment. Um, listeners will be re- uh, hopefully really familiar with the changing the culture work that's been going on across the sector to try and improve um, reporting mechanisms. Um, around uh, different forms of harassment, um, not just sexual harassment. And this report is really trying to kind of pull out from that and say, actually, stalking and domestic abuse as, as particularly t- particular types of unpleasantness um, perhaps aren't always being recognised in um, in policies and in, in the, the numbers that are collected. Uh, so, you know, there's... Um, they also point out quite rightly that sometimes these increases and they point to one or two universities that have got really high instances. Um, this is actually because there's been such work done recently on improving reporting mechanisms. So this is a challenge of any work in this, this area. If you improve mm. the ways that people can tell you about something horrible happening, you know, strangely enough, you can have an increase in the number of things that are reported. Yeah, I- indeed. It was, um, I think it was University of Cardiff and they were kind of, had the highest number of, 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 of reports of of this kind of um, uh, uh, behaviour, mm-hmm. such terrible words. Um, but it was their reporting mechanism. They had a really good reporting mechanism for, mm. for doing such a thing. So um, Yeah, and I think there's, there's, there is so much work going on in the sector right now with, with people trying to improve their reporting mechanisms. They're trialling different things. They're, they're, they're trying to... Um, they're trying to support people also to um, make... Uh, so report historical instances, which is interesting, and that's been flagged particularly as this was about a three-year period, 2015 to 2018. But you know, there's the possibility that there's also historical information in there as well. 
Now, some of the things that was was interesting to me coming out of this uh, report was um, it's important to note that this is in the context of a particular campaign as well. So this is from anti-stalking charity uh, Paladin um, calling for a stalker's register and some other other changes. Um, And this is within a a wider context in the UK um, where this this is quite a serious issue. I think a recent... um, report said that in the last two years nationally stalking and harassment has gone up 40 percent in england and wales um again that's reporting of so the actual numbers you know we, we we've no idea what it could be whilst there are national contexts for this as with uh, i think it is always important to kind of come back and say well actually what's going on in universities why is that different what can we do about it and that's some of the things the report was trying to look at and make recommendations for they are particularly keen to i think focus on the fact of of um perpetrators staying within the same university so they're kind of focusing on those those outcomes um as well as as well as the challenge of um, reporting and supporting people once they have reported yeah no i think what you said is really interesting jess especially about the data sets and um about how often kind of successes in in creating processes whereby people can report can can make the figures look sort of on paper a lot kind of quote unquote worse. Um, yes, I think it is important to bear that in mind. I completely agree. But I also think that a lot of these articles that come out are their, their focus is on um, universities' policies surrounding these things, their processes, and also the way the outcomes. So they'll kind of often take the line of, oh, these people reported this and these people were allowed to stay at university or something. So that seems to be the, the story quite a lot of the time. And I, I just kind of, hmm, I just kind of worry about the way universities will be able to deal with this kind of thing because it seems that it's very difficult to kind of because because not sometimes it's not really a question of legality so it kind of goes into a gray area where it's difficult for universities to deal with these things in the sense that you may have a set of policies but it's also about how you communicate them to students if everyone is aware of exactly what the code of conducts are before um, starting and then if you have a process whereby you can say you violate, violated this therefore we'll treat it this way but when those things aren't in place it's very difficult to to say whether something has been kind of dealt with the right way or not and that's what I think excuse me leads to some of these um, these stories that you'll hear whereby it's like oh this many people were said to be um, involved in this and they got to stay at, and do their degrees and they weren't suspended and it's really difficult because obviously each case will be completely different and the decisions made on a case-by-case basis. Um, so I am always a bit sceptical, but I also kind of, I'm also a bit concerned about the way forward for universities in dealing with this kind of thing. I'm looking at one of the stats in the Broadly report, which says 13% of universities have specific policies on domestic abuse and stalking. And I think, again, that would come down to, like you said, the definitions, um, because it's really, I, like domestic abuse, I think is very hard to define. I don't think people, when they speak about it, have the same things in mind. And I think it's actually much more of an umbrella term than people think. So what those policies refer to is, again, raises a lot of questions. So I just think that there's a lot to be clarified before we can even kind of move on with any of these conclusions. Yeah, I think I think the, the definitions point is really interesting because there's two aspects of that. There's There's defining something in order to understand it. So that speaks to these questions of how can you train and talk to people about understanding how, you know, abuse presents itself. And there's been a huge history, you know, of, of, you know, of feminist legal studies and, and so forth, trying to talk about things like coercive control and the effects of, 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 um, of, of stalking and, and, and long term harassment and things like that. Um, and really trying to challenge some of our understandings of harm. 
Um, so there's so understanding that um, and helping you know people who might receive um, disclosures from students so that they can recognise that, take that seriously. Um, recognise patterns in behaviour, you know, that's really important. And that's why, you know, understanding definitions is, is useful. On the flip side, when it comes to uh, defining and reporting mechanisms, what we also hear in a lot of things around, um, um, you know, various forms of hate crime reporting in universities right now, are people saying, actually, we want to almost move away from strict definitions on, on reporting, because we kind of, if students aren't happy, if students aren't, fi- f- you know, sorry, anything from the umbrella of students aren't happy to students aren't safe. They want to know and they don't want someone to not report something because they're just not sure what box it fits into. So so I'm hearing a lot of people doing this frontline, um, you know, uh, reporting work saying actually what we want is the widest possible, um, you know, filter for things to come in and then we will make sure you get the support and we will match the processes to to the particular instance but we need to know and the the worst thing is about not having a clear understanding of the extent of this right now no indeed this is such a difficult and tricky area for universities you must have some empathy nick for for universities that are kind of developing their policies and and such I, i do and i i'm really pleased this research has happened even though as you've heard there's problems with the data um and we need to be very careful of not condemning universities with large numbers in the data because sometimes they're the universities that have done the most to work out what's really happening under the radar um, and are having the right conversations. Um, I think it it brings out a much wider uh, policy problem that I wrestle with as well, which is um, what should happen to the perpetrators if we believe education is a positive force for transforming lives it doesn't necessarily feel as if the right punishment is to kick people out of education. It seems to me they need more education to stop them doing these sorts of awful practices. Um, but it may well be that they need that education at a different institution. Uh, um, and there's this dilemma, isn't there, in higher education that we think we should kick out students who do horrific um, things. But we also celebrate universities that go into prisons and get criminals uh, um, to have higher qualifications and i think this is a conversation we need to have is it uh, you know is it i don't know where the transfer regime comes in where actually perpetrators uh, should be kicked out of one university but given a second chance elsewhere or should they be kicked out of the higher education system altogether i don't have the answer but i think it's an interesting conundrum we need to wrestle with so if i yeah if i can come in on that there's some interesting balances here so um, you know, universities have have duties under Rehabilitation of Offenders Act. So, you know, there's there's lots of amazing work going on um, to support um, ex prisoners, ex offenders. There's, there's different terminology, um, as you say, to 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 rebuild their lives, to to access education. That's really important. The challenge for these things is there's there's a difference between uh, supporting people who may have um, a a past history in offending and risk of certain behaviours affecting someone else's right to education. And these are really careful balancing acts. There's lots of universities who do a lot of work around risk assessment um, for for different um, people uh, with histories of offending. Um, So so this work is going on and perhaps, as you say, we need a wider, more public conversation around some stuff. Um, But I think it's really important to remember this this balancing of rights to education. When, When a perpetrator stays and the victim feels forced to leave, those are the things that we we should be very concerned about and I think that's come up time and time again in some of the amazing work that, that's been going on um, by um, uh, you know various groups to, to highlight the 
the impact of this, which not always by any means, but, but we do know is highly gendered. Uh, I completely agree with that. And of course, if someone was in a working environment and this mm. was happening, you know, we wouldn't think the, per- the perpetrator should stay in that working environment while the victim leaves. So, you know, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think, you know, this sort of research triggers these sorts of conversations in a really useful way. Now it's time for yes, but does it correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate, the podcast data quiz that refuses to grant you a short or a long extension. This week I've been diving into the HESA BCI data, which prompted me to wonder whether the number of attendees at free public lectures was linked to the number of car parking spaces on campus. Are people more likely to come to an inaugural if they know there's somewhere they can leave the car? Yes, but does it correlate? Right, so I've actually got quite a strong opinion on this. And let, watch me be wrong now and all the listeners are going to be like, oh, that was satisfying. <laughs> but basically, I think the reason is, I don't think it correlates at all. And the reason is because I always used to go to the LSE public lectures um, and they were always so packed but because they were in central London. Everyone was clearly coming by public transport. Um, so I kind of think that the ones that you get most people at are going to be quite central and therefore might have fewer parking spaces. So I don't think it, wait, I think it negatively correlates. I'm going to absolutely agree with Artie there for many of the same reasons. I th- and I think a more interesting question for me would actually be, uh, does it correlate for more young people to go to university if free transport is provided of, of any nature? But but we'll focus on cars, why not? I, 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 I agree, but I'd go even further. I think there will be a correlation, but there could be an inverse correlation because, um, uh, you know, many newer modern universities are right in the middle of towns and cities and are very easy to get to by public transport. It, it, there could be an Oxbridge effect, I wonder. Oxford and Cambridge do loads of amazing lectures. There's, there's quite a lot of parking linked to the colleges and departments, so that could skew it, but I think an inverse correlation. Well, no, of course it doesn't. If you're wondering why I'm looking at such silly data, my reason is to highlight that much of the business and community interaction data return is not yet of great quality. If you paddle around some of the other data in there, you'll see some strange outliers which I suspect is testament to institutions gradually gaining an understanding of the requirements and importance of the collection. It's a good thing no one's considering using this in an excellence framework, isn't it? I've removed Coventry from the main visualisation as they claim to have entertained 11,875,132 people at public lectures in 2017-18, which in all honesty feels a bit high. Any others missing either return no data on public lecture attendance or no data on car parking spaces or both. And where the data doesn't exist, as usual, I've not plotted it. See you next time. And finally... A super interesting initiative by UK Guarantor, a Manchester-based rent guarantor service, who is going to offer free guarantor services to care leavers who are entering into higher education. So, Artie, what do you think of this initiative? So, I th- I'm really glad that we've got a kind of positive item on the podcast, because it's quite difficult sometimes. Um, but, yes, essentially, this story is this uh, Manchester-based company called UK Guarantor. Um, essentially, they... So students looking for accommodation at university would often have to provide a guarantor for their rent. And many students would just kind of, without thinking about it, use a parent or family member or guardian to fill this role. Um, but if you don't have a guarantor, then you might be asked to pay your rent in advance, which often can cause a lot of problems because if it doesn't line up with when your, your loan comes in or it can basically, it can be a barrier for students that aren't able to to provide a guarantor. So what this company is doing, UK Guarantor, is they are putting aside a proportion of their profits to be a guarantor for care leavers. Um, the 
company already provides these kind of services for international students who can't provide a rent guarantor because their families live overseas. Um, and then the company expanded to include UK students. Um, and now they're, they're looking to help people that are leaving the care system to go to university. Um, so what I really like about this is that I just think it goes some way towards addressing the issue we have of assuming that family structures are very linear and that if you, you're, you know, if you have a certain household income, then your parents will pay a certain amount towards your maintenance and therefore you don't need this in your loan. Your parents will be a guarantor. It just kind of, it assumes a lot about people's family circumstances. And I think in reality, they're a lot more complex. So it's quite good that it's a bit of a shame that, that policy is, is lagging behind a little bit in accepting this. Um, but I think it's a good thing that these kind of initiatives are at least in the interim period, kind of filling the gaps and making things a bit more accessible for students with different kinds of family circumstances. So, so I think this is a really interesting example of of, um, of effectively private sector trying to to um, uh, to, to fill um, some gaps, as, as Artie says. But I think we should be aware that there's there's been a huge amount of work done um, in the past ten plus years, really, for to support um, care leavers and improve that. Um, you know, we've, we 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 um, you know had um, you know all the bottle trust you know kite marks. We've had the care leavers covenant with the number of universities signed up to that now which involves sort of, you know, saying that you're going to provide specific support for for care-leaving students around some of this practical stuff around, you know, all-year accommodation or flexible accommodation, uh, you know, um, rent guarantee schemes, um, first point of contact and, and, and things like this. Um, and I think this all culminated a lot in the, um, you know, the call um, last month um, from from the ministers to, to say, you know, we need a culture change at universities to encourage more care-leavers to stay in HE, which is, of course, a slightly different thing from from join he um so I, th I think this is a great addition to to a wave of work that's that's been ongoing i think it's great if we start to talk about um or continue to talk about estranged students as well as care leavers who some, sometimes have some of these same challenges as you say not assuming certain family structures or support structures behind individuals um so yeah it's it's, it's a great news story and I, I hope it i hope it sort of prompts any unis that haven't looked at their accommodation issues yet, whether that's their own accommodation or their support for private rental, just to, to maybe um, um, have another look at that and uh, consider um, how best to support their students. So I agree this is a really positive initiative. Such a small proportion of care leavers make it to higher education. They seem to me pretty exceptional people when they do. Um, I think it raises a wider point. I mean, I went on the website of this uh, company that's doing this, and they also lend money to uh, new graduates who struggle to get on the housing ladder too, or even to pay their rent, rather. Um, and so that just takes us back to the Onward report we discussed earlier. And I think there's another point as well, which is I think one of the big surprises in the Orga report, if and when it comes out, will be a big section on student accommodation uh, and the cost of living. And I do worry that without initiatives like this one, we could end up in a world where poorer students with tougher backgrounds are expected to live in one type of accommodation and uh, middle-class students get to have the old traditional experience in the hall of residence or the or the uh, 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 self-catered accommodation. Um, so I think there's some wider issues raised by this about access to accommodation for students from a range of different backgrounds. So that is about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. And don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast 
And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch. So thanks to Jess and to Nick and to Artie and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen. And until next week, stay democratic. Stay democratic.